This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. I have been so excited about this week's show for a couple of months, ever since Westminster College reached out to me to ask if I would be interested in having a very special guest on Speaking of the Arts. OMG, yes, I said, and then went into a weeks-long panic about how I could possibly do justice to an artist with such a storied career, who has been interviewed numerous times by the New York Times, CNN, The Guardian, national magazines and international art journals. What do you ask someone who has been asked every question I could possibly think of, and then some? But I love a deep rabbit hole, and so it has really been such a delight to spend the last few weeks reading about tonight's guest. I hope you enjoy the next hour as much as I enjoyed making it. On Wednesday, September the 14th, Nick Cave, the globally renowned visual artist, sculptor, dancer, teacher and foremost messenger, will be one of the guest speakers at Fulton's Westminster College for their annual Hancock Symposium, which invites noted experts to talk about a subject of global interest. For Nick Cave, it is a homecoming. He spent his early childhood in Fulton before moving to Columbia in the early 1970s and attending Hickman High School. It was, he says, a utopian childhood that laid the foundation for his visionary artistic oeuvre. Nick got his BFA from the Kansas City Art Institute and simultaneously studied dance with the groundbreaking and visionary Alvin Ailey dancers. He went on to the illustrious Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan, getting his Master's in Fine Art and walking straight into a teaching job at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where 30 years later he is the Professor of Fashion, Body and Garment. But it was in 1991, as the brutal beating of Rodney King by the L.A. police reverberated around the world, that Nick Cave created a wearable artwork that would go on to change his life. It was the first of his now 500-plus sound suits, a body camouflaging second skin that conceals race, gender and class, a wearable, kinetic, sound-producing carapace that protects and both demands to be seen and also forces the viewer to look without judgment. Imperative for Nick is creating spaces of memorial through visual art and performance, centering the figure and creating dialogue through found objects to explore our current societal traumas of gun violence and racism. And to ask the question, how can we all do the work to instigate change and to heal? Today, he has works in public art collections in 30 states, plus in museums around the world from Sydney to Stockholm. And through October the 2nd, the first career-spanning survey of his work, entitled For Other More, is on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. And will move to the Guggenheim in New York City in mid-November. Plus phase one of a massive four and a half thousand square foot permanent installation of his work comprising mosaic and video has just been completed in the lavishly refurbished subway beneath New York's Times Square.
And for the next hour, the totally fabulous, artistically unparalleled Nick Cave is my guest. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Nick. Hey, good morning. I have to confess, Nick, that having been steeped in your work and your story for weeks now, I feel a little overwhelmed by how I can possibly do your career <laughs> and history and vision justice in our short time together. But I think that as we are community radio and you are from this community, we should start locally. And so I want to fly back in time to your early life in Fulton and ask, what are your keenest memories of growing up there and how art was part of your early life? You know, it's funny when you think about the place you were born and and the impact of that. And, and as you sort of get older and start to reflect on that time, you start to understand in terms of understanding, like, where did this creative vibration come from? And I realized that, you know, I've come from a family of makers, there's woodworkers, musicians, quilt makers, seamstresses, painters. This is really sort of has always been the underbelly of my foundation. But it's interesting how I was the one that sort of decided to run with that and find a a pathway that allowed me to establish this sort of amazing career within the arts. You have all of these incredible influences. Like you say, you, I think it was that your grandfather was a painter. You had lots of dancing competitions with your cousins and brothers. Your aunts and your mother were seamstresses and quilters. And there was all this style in your childhood. It was kind of pervasive in your childhood. And and these skills, these talents that everybody had, they far outweighed for you any sense of money being tight, of space being limited, of food sometimes being in short supply. You always seem to have had a vision far beyond your surroundings, an innate understanding that you have a gift. Talk to me about that sense of self you had as a child and, and what nurtured it. You know, I think, you know, when you have parents that really don't get in the way, they don't make those decisions in terms of your education. Yes, you know, growing up from kindergarten to high school, that was a given. We have to sort of finish high school. But to make that decision to move forward and to go to college, but going to college means going to the Kansas City Art Institute. You know, my parents were like, okay, with a little bit of hesitation, <laughs> uh, <laughs> thinking like, oh my God, what, where is this going to lead to? But, you know, I think, you know, when I was in high school and Miss Mickrit, my high school art teacher, she was the one that said you should consider going to art school. And so that was really the beginning of me applying to the Kansas City Art Institute. And back then it was real competitive. It was really about building this portfolio. And so that was really the focus of my high school 
was, you know, what is that portfolio that I need to build in order to apply and to get into the Kansas City Art Institute? My brother Jack also went to the Kansas City Art Institute. And, you know, with Jack, we were raised in an environment where we would set up still lives and we would challenge each other in terms of who would be the quickest one to paint it. Or (laughs) we sort of learned how to macrame. I'm just sort of thinking about these moments where that level of competitiveness, that level of being challenged was sort of established even then being part of the high school art league. You know, really building community around a sensibility, around what your focus was and what you were interested in. But it was really, you know, my parents allowing us to be creative and and, and sort of not getting in the way or hindering that as perhaps a possibility or or a way of seeing ourselves as we developed and, and grew up. Were you and Jack competitive with each other? Was there a sense of one being better than the other or every the other one always trying to catch up with the other well you know it was not really because again you know being raised in a family of seven boys you know we fought kids do all these kind of things but at the same time we had to always make up And so the unconditional love, the constant support was always part of building our character. You know, at a young age, we just dug out maybe a couple of weeks ago these articles that we were in in high school in the newspaper. And to think about that moment and like there was already these things that were prevailing and put in place that sort of provided momentum and drive and attention. And my mother walked us through rejection, you know, when you would be in uh, art competitions at the Art League and you got honorable mention versus first and second and third place. We were sort of coached that could also happen and and that doesn't mean that you are a less of a creative person than the other person. So, you know, these things were there and again, just applying for the Kansas City Art Institute, that was sort of a feat in itself to put in the work. In order for this to be a possibility, you must put in the work. Your mum, I know, still lives in Colombia and everything I read about her, she's just an amazing woman. She she herself was the eldest of, is it 16 children? She gave right. birth to eight boys, each one year apart, and you are the third in that, in that list. She was largely a single mother after your parents' divorce. She worked full time and she was so practical and kind. In what ways are you your mother's son? I think that structure. My mother, you know, we had structure. There was the calendar. And all you needed to do in terms of understanding what your responsibilities were, was to go to the calendar. Every day was like homework before play. Mm -hmm. So there was just these things that were sort of set in place that in order to sort of understand responsibility, you know, at the age of 16, I'm like, well, you know, mom, I want these Sicily jeans. And she's (laughs) 
like, well, you better get a job. (laughs) (laughs) These things that you want cost money. So you need to start to think about a part-time job so that you can get the things that you want. So it was these sort of moments where like, oh, okay, in order for me to get a car, I need to get a job. So it was sort of like, okay, responsibility started to sort of set in place. And it made a difference when I got my first paycheck from my first job and like, oh, I can buy what I want. So that and just the structure, you know, when I think about discipline and sort of my own studio practice, you know, it comes down to order. It comes down to clarity. It comes down to sort of like how do I mainstream in terms of where production is constantly moving, but it's very smooth. What did you buy with your first paycheck? Probably clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Because you have to understand, like, when you're growing up in a family of seven boys and you have hand-me-downs, you're like, ah, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the beginning of me starting to deconstruct and rebuild even a garment. Mm. You know, it's interesting when I think about, like, how did clothing become pivotal within my practice uh, and this whole idea of reclaiming and reimagining an identity of, of, of something. And that was really the beginning when I started to sort of like, well, you know, this hand, you know, now I have my brother's jacket. How can I make it look different or be different? And so, you know, it's interesting, these things that were happening that has definitely informed me in my practice today. So you would be handed down Jack's outfits and then the brothers behind you who maybe weren't as artistic as you and Jack are like, what are we going to do with this jacket <laughs> that you've completely altered? <laughs> exactly. Or you're like, or like, this is weird. <laughs> there was a lot of that said in the family. This is weird. He makes weird stuff. I feel like brother number four probably got all new clothes because brother number four was like, I'm not wearing that. (laughs) Well, you know, he he did. And, you know, and the rules were more relaxed, (laughs) you know, and I'm like, oh, so he doesn't have to do the dishes. Why did we have to do the dishes? It's funny when you think about all of that, though. Mm. So within the family, you have... All of these incredible examples of creating style from whatever was to hand, the value of being a maker as part of being an artist, aunts and a mother who could just whip up anything, Sunday best from whatever was to hand. And then beyond your immediate family community, you have the fly stylings of Soul Train and the couture of Ebony magazine and the Ebony fashion fairs and the fashion parade at church every Sunday. So when you were a teenager... And you had all of this style around you. What did you see for your future self? Did you know what you were going to do? You know what? I didn't. I knew that somehow my vibration, my blood, when creativity, when I was surrounded by that or or involved in that, I just sort of was in my element. You know, and I think that that was the the beauty is that, you know, the camaraderie of working with 
other individuals that like-minded, you sense this sort of sense of place. And so I felt it. Did I know it? I don't know if I knew it, but, you know, I was involved in creating talent shows, doing art-related things in high school. And so at that beginning, you know, there is this sort of collaboration. It was not called that at during that time period, but it was this, you know, how do we sort of corral a group of individuals to make something happen? And so it was this sort of sense of preparation and preparing for something and and then to have this feeling of the experience, the outcome, and the sort of response. And so I knew that that was thrilling, that was exciting. But it was really, you know, the moment that I landed in Kansas City at the Art Institute where I was at that moment surrounded by 200 other creative people, individuals. So, yeah, I'm interested in that period of the Kansas City Art Institute. You're surrounded by artists. Your brother Jack is also studying there. Art is just everywhere. But you also get this chance to study with the Alvin A. Lee dancers. And you say that you weren't sure how it would all come together, but you very presciently kind of knew that you needed dance, even though it would be more than a decade until your art and your dance really came together in your sound suit. But thinking back to that time, what did you feel you needed to know about dance? Well, you know what? How I sort of was structuring that was dance at the University of Kansas, Kansas City, was, which was really down the street from the Art Institute, was I sort of looked at dance as another medium to consider. So, you know, I worked in fiber, textiles, did some painting, design work, dance, photography. And so really it was looking at dance as, or really the body Hmm. as this sort of carrier for these art objects that I was making in undergraduate school. You know, I was printing fabrics. And so then you're printing fabrics. Well, what's the purpose of the fabric? And, And so therefore you make something wearable. And so therefore then there's the body that's involved. And so you find that there's all of these moments of interconnection that then allows that idea to be presented in the form of movement. I'm curious about, you had art, dance, fashion, movement, how it was art that predominantly won out, because it sounds like fashion could easily have consumed you. Well, you know, it's interesting because I did, you know, at the Kansas City Art Institute, there was at the end of the year open studio. And this one particular year, I think it was my junior year, I had done this capsule collection and that was maybe, let's say, 12 clothing pieces. And Swanson, which was a department store on the plaza, came through the studio, saw this collection and uh, had me come in to do a trunk show in the store. 
door. I have no idea, like, what the hell is a trunk show? And like, okay, uh, am I prepared for this? And so, you know, it was like dabbing a little bit over here. And then, you know, I would corral my friends at school. We would then sort of, I'm like, oh, I'm going to, let's create a parade and parade down on the plaza. (laughs) So that was things, you know, these happenings that I sort of looked at as expanding the sort of canvas, like the world out there is is my canvas. And so that's where I could get feedback. Uh, We're not hurting anyone parading on the plaza in these sort of outrageous, wearable costumes of sorts. And so just that as this alternative arena. You know, every first Friday of the month, there was performance on campus. And so being exposed, uh, being surrounded by your colleagues that are like also involved and invested in in all of that, you know, it became just a, a testing ground of possibility. If you are just tuning in, this is Speaking of the Arts. And my guest this evening is the world-renowned visual artist, sculptor, teacher and dancer, Nick Cave, who grew up in Fulton and Columbia and who will be one of the guest speakers at Westminster College's Hancock Symposium next Wednesday, September the 14th. I think it is endlessly important for white people to understand that whilst we see ourselves and our stories everywhere in the arts, black and brown people do not. So tell me about seeing a work of art called Steve by Barclay Hendricks and what that work meant to you. That was, you know, I had just... I think I had just taken a position in 88, maybe, here at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And during that year, there was this exposition titled Color. And it was the first art expo that was of artists of color. And that's where I saw this painting of Barclay Hendricks titled Steve. And let me tell you, I like was like, OMG, I needed it. I wanted it. And it was just sort of because it was, I saw myself in this painting it was this sort of male individual just dressed in this most remarkable way that really illustrated the black power and style and elegance in a way that I could identify with and you know what at the time it was ten thousand dollars let me tell you ten thousand dollars was like a million (laughs) (laughs) And all I could do was just like, oh, my God, I, don't, I can't. I don't have any money. I can't. So, oh, I'm going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but you did end up buying a Barclay Hendrix, right? But I did eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Being sort of exposed to artists of color in this expo was like, 
Wow. Because even growing up in, in school, it was not that there was really a broad selection of Black artists that were talked about within the art world. And so that sort of allowed, again, allowed me to understand my place and to, and to be in these sort of surroundings of these amazing artists uh, and makers of color that that let me know that we do exist and that we are here. And so, and, and not that I was not, I was sort of raised, you know, I think as kids of color, there's that moment where we all have that conversation about race. Hmm. And I remember my mother setting us down and talking about that and what those obstacles could be or could look like, but at the same time, do not allow this to hinder your growth and your development. So it never was something that was ever in the way, but was definitely something that I was very consciously aware of. Right. So on that front, let's shimmy forward in time. It's 1991. You are teaching at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. You've been there for a couple of years. And your sense of self, your sense of security is rocked and profoundly changed by the brutal beating of Rodney King. Is this really brought home to you that as a black man, you are guilty until proven innocent and completely vulnerable as soon as you leave your own personal space. And and nobody reaches out to you. No one says, how are you doing, Nick? It feels as though no one's paying attention, right? But, but you turn this despair into a life-changing work of art. And I know you've told this story a million times, but tell us about that first sound suit. You know, I was sitting in Millennium Park knowing Grant Park. And I was really just sort of trying to wrap my head around, for the first time on video, we were able to see this beating of a Black man uh, by police. I mean, just imagine just that as the first time visual for all of us, not just people of color, all of us. And it was extremely complicated and difficult to understand the reasoning behind it. Um, And so I was really, and I could tell that my peers that I was teaching with really didn't know how to talk about it and certainly not with me. Mm. Uh, and they were all white. And so there was just this sort of awkwardness, this sort of uncomfortableness in the in the office. And I, you know, was in the park just trying to process. And that's when I think I was the beginning of a method in order for me to sort of understand and try to bring some sort of reckoning with these thoughts uh, was to just think and to reflect. And so, you know, as I was reading about the description that they sort of 
identified Rodney King. It was profound uh, to me as they were saying things like, worked out with prison weights, larger than life, uh, scary. And I'm just trying to imagine, like, what does that look like as an image? And, you know, I was... I don't know. I was looking down the ground and there was this twig and I started collecting the twigs in the park. And as I started collecting the twigs, I was collecting the twigs because this was, you know, something that was dismissed, discarded. You know, I could kick it out of the way. Uh, I, uh, it had no value. But for some reason, I came back to the studio, went back with my Heart and started to proceed with this gathering of, of this material, went back to the studio, started to make this what I thought was a sculpture. But then I realized it was something that I could wear. And then the moment that I put this object on the body and started to move, it made sound. And so that led me to this idea of... And, protest in order to be heard you got to speak louder and so that was the beginning of the sound suit was this moment that I physically was able to cocoon my body in this object which then became this suit of armor this sort of object of protection doing what I could to protect my inner self my soul my spirit Mm. by concealing and hiding gender, race, class, forcing the viewer to look at something without judgment, was really this pivotal shift in my work. And when I made the object, I knew when I saw it that it would change my life. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that there was something there that was going to be significant. And so then I did this entire body of sounds, who's probably 10, and sort of kept them hidden, didn't expose them into the art arena for about a decade because I was also not sure what, had just happened, what I was making, what was the sort of meaning, the gravity of this work. And I needed to catch up with the physicalness of making this work. I needed to catch my mind up to what's behind it. Why is this work being created? What's the importance of it? And so, and then the moment that I sent out the material, I was probably on the cover of a magazine within like six months. Mm. So I was like just overwhelmed, uh, to say the least, in terms of being prepared. But, you know, preparation meets opportunity. I truly believe that. And so, you know, that was really the beginning of my life. Uh, shifting in this remarkable way. So this was really the start of you being able to use your art to 
to make a statement, to be a messenger. And you say that you consider yourself a messenger first and an artist second, but an artist who has a civic responsibility. And you want your art to be a healing force against all of these crushing issues we're facing, racial injustice, gun violence, homophobia, and that idea that we constantly point at people who are other than us. Talk a little bit about that sense of having a calling. I think that, um, you know, as I was developing this work and I think what happened doing the sort of Rodney King, you know, you exist in the world, you think that you are really sort of present. uh, And then that moment woke my conscience up in a way that I had never experienced. And so what I think it did was I think that it woke it up and made me understand that you may be the voice for many you may be in this position of communicating through this sort of vehicle of art for change. And so I think civic has come into my work based in public outreach and and collaboration and community service. Uh, I think that I understand myself as an artist uh, and I get that, but it's really the civic work. It's me going into a city and hiring the city to build the project. It's probably the most profound and rewarding aspect of my practice um, because of this sort of space of possibility to be able to create space for the most amazing creative people that I meet along the way that, you know, I bring into a project and to sort of create this space, this platform of possibility is like mind-boggling, and the testimonies that follow that experience. You know, the audience sees the conclusion of, let's say, a two-week residency that uh, I am completely invested in. And, and But what I experience is this extraordinary work that goes into building something. And so... I am in a position where I can be that voice. I can create that space for uh, ways in which we need and have responsibility to sort of help change the way in which we exist and and, uh, are in the world. And so... And we all need to find ways to sort of, how do we come together to talk about these difficult issues around uh, racism, injustice, inequality, homophobia, 
And how do we create safe spaces for that? You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And my guest this evening is the world-renowned visual artist Nick Cave, who grew up in Fulton and Columbia and who has a major survey of his work on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago through October the 2nd, and who will be one of the guest speakers at Westminster College's Hancock Symposium on next Wednesday, September the 14th. One of the things that I really love about how you work is your understanding about the importance, as you say, of taking art out to the people rather than just showing it in places that either are because of financial barriers or are perceived to be exclusive spaces that not everybody is welcoming. And the importance of just rolling your sleeves up and getting out in a community and doing the work. And you had a beautiful project in 2020 as you were launching your your new multidisciplinary art space called Facility. You did a project called Amends in Chicago. Would you talk a little bit about that? Amends, that project came about, unfortunately with the George Floyd situation. And I was at home in Columbia at that time. And I literally was like going nuts. And my mother could tell that like, oh my God, she still says this kid is like just needing to react. He's just on the edge. And so then I came back to Chicago because I needed to get involved in some form or another. And I had this building that I had just purchased maybe four or five years ago. And, you know, the building is it appears to be three storefronts, these amazing big windows, which we use for exhibitions. Uh, we invite artists to come in and do special projects. But I got back here and I realized that I could use facility to say something. So me and my partner, Bob Faust, collectively got together and I said, you know what, we have to sort of do something in the moment. And um, so we came up with amends. Um, Then we decided that we are going to invite collectors, uh, civic leaders, other artists to come and write letters to the world on the window about racism their own personal experience around racism. And these were letters to the world. So therefore, you could come up to the windows and you could read these 50 letters that people had written on the windows. Across the street from where I live is a public high school with this enormous front lawn. And so we went over to the high school and said, can we use the lawn to create a clothesline, the piece titled Dirty Laundry. So that was an extension of amends where the community could come and write in amends and then go hang it on the clothesline. Just imagine this clothesline is 
oh, I can't even tell you the length of it. And just thinking like one amends goes up and you're like, oh my God, how is this going to fill up? And and is it going to fill up? Because we're just really sort of purely out of impulse, just trying to somehow get involved in some way or another. And it was, again, one of the most amazing projects because the community at large came and were involved and participated in this way that was extraordinary. And so again, you know, I remember Bob, I came home and Bob and his daughter was like, oh my God, we were at a march. Bob is a white male. We went to a march and, you know, it was exhilarating. It was great. We were so happy that we did. And I said to him, well, if you're going to march about it, you've got to talk about it. And he was like, wow, right. And so this was the beginning of us looking at and understanding the purpose of facility, why we had this building, you know, we didn't have to wait for the bureaucracy to say something, to make a statement, to get involved. We were able to really dive right in and really be present in that moment. And so it's that sort of, uh, that's the importance of civic responsibility, civic placement. What are ways in which we can all be connected and part of change and uh, establishing a world in which, you know, what is the world in which we want to live in? We all are here. We all are going nowhere. We are living and must understand that we will be living together. And so how do we make the best of that? Right. You have said that you aspire to be relevant to art history. And to me, it feels like you have definitely achieved that. But how does it feel to you? You know, I don't really, as a messenger, you know, you're given assignments. And so you deliver those and move on. And then you move on to the next deed. And so I'm not... uh, it isn't over till it's over. I am ready to go when there's uh, a moment of reflection, a moment that needs to have a response, a call and response. I am all in and here for it. Uh, and, you know, things are happening around the work that are moments such as Times Square and the largest mosaic installation in New York City. And it's a permanent piece. Right. I wrote this quote maybe 20 years ago, working toward what I'm leaving behind. And that moment, that Times Square moment, was really the first time that I felt that in this sort of big way. You know, exhibitions come and go. There is this documentation of that in the form of a book. And, you know, you become connected to art history in in those ways. But that Times Square 
peace is like, whoa, this will be here long after I'm gone. And it just changes my whole sort of perspective. So when you look back over the last 30 years of art that you have made, can you pinpoint an artwork or maybe a body of work that you feel is closest to the spirit of the boy Nick Cave in Fulton and Columbia? I would say I would have to go to the sound suits uh, because the sound suits, you know, I'm still very shy, very um, extremely sensitive, very protective and all of that. And so that, that, that's what that sounds. But yet I sort of have this persona as exuberant and, you know, like available, but I am totally not. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, hopeful and have optimism and beliefs uh, that are greater than myself. And empowered by the magnitude and the gravity of that. It's interesting when, again, someone can say sound suit and they know who that is. You know, it's these sort of things that I'm like, oh, when that moment happened, I was like, oh, so it's no longer, it's the work that people see and and understand and identify with and so and then the artist comes second so again that's interesting to think about but then when I think about messenger it all makes sense there is a lovely quote by the curator of your show in Chicago, Naomi Beckwith, and she said, we should applaud the fact that someone has found a way to make beauty out of darkness. And another curator you worked with in Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art said, he wants to seduce you and then punch you in the gut. And I, I love this juxtaposition of the beauty and but the horror, and even though they look really exuberant and fun and joyful, there's such a huge message underneath it. And you are so attracted to beauty that you make everything beautiful. But ugly is also part of the truth, too. And I always feel today that we there are millions of people who are really bad at understanding context. It feels like we're at a point in history where we need to beat them over the head with a hot frying pan. So <laughs> do you think, do you feel like beauty gets the message across strongly enough? Well, I think beauty for me has always been my rebellion. You know, it's what I've used to fight against. But it also is the entry into my work. And that is really sort of, I have to think about all of these logistics, the strategies around the work. And if I am talking about difficult issues that we are dealing with within society, I've got to also ask myself, how do I allow you to be part of the journey, part of the process. What is that way in to the work? And so I've always used that. I've always used nostalgic objects, memory, history as a way in. And then once that you're in, 
you then have to sort of decide what that means to you. Hmm. And beauty also is, again, about optimism and hope. I mean, for me to think about this survey of the work and for me to think about for three and a half decades, I have been trying to bring light to the subject of racism and injustice. That's just like really sort of enormous process. But to also understand that this medium is how I have been able to work through the trauma of it all. And I am so fortunate to understand that art has been my savior at the end of the day. Right. When you were doing that show in Massachusetts, the Museum of Contemporary Art, you asked yourself the question, and that the the kind of show responded to, is there racism in heaven? And I'm curious, whatever your concept of heaven is, in a heaven of equality and fairness and goodness, is there even art in heaven? Well, I don't know. And that, that statement came from Michael Brown, Denise Marconish, the curator for the show at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, came to my studio and invited me to do this project at Mass Mocha, which is in their largest gallery, which is Gallery 5, which is really the size of a small football field. And she goes, I'm going to go away and I'll be back in a year to see where your thoughts are around this invitation. And I was like, great, you know, no problem. She goes, one but with one uh, caveat, and that is you cannot do any sound suits. And I was like, great. <laughs> that sort of process of, you know, thinking about, you know, how moving forward and getting on with things. Um, and then Michael Brown happened and I was in the studio. And that's when this thought, is there racism in heaven? came to to mind and that was the catalyst for that show titled Until. And so as, as I was developing that show, what I wanted to do was to put you into the belly of a sound suit. And so therefore what that means is really what's behind the work, you know? And so that's what I created, this immersive installation that you literally had to move into this kinetic moving architectural force that then uh, led you to this crystal cloudscape, which was hovering 15 feet into the air. And then above that was this garden. And so is it? I don't know, but you know, the attempt of sort of imagining that is all that we really sort of have. I mean, you know, we can continue to dream and to hope and to imagine. So one final question, Nick. You have so many fans in Colombia, especially within the Colombia public school system. I think your school packages are in all the elementary schools um, and probably the high schools too. (laughs) So you're from here. Your mum lives here. How do we get more Nick Cave in Colombia? 
How do we get more Nick Cave in Colombia? I don't know. I think we have to sort of think about organizations, uh, the universities, uh, and sort of to sort of come together to bring a performance there. Uh, you know, I just read this article at, at Westminster College. Right where I will be speaking, they just received this enormous art funding. I don't know what that means in terms of they can expand the museum, but, you know, that would be great to be able to have an exhibition somewhere and to be able to bring performance and to be able to work within community and just really kind of celebrate all of us and bring us all together under this amazing sort of umbrella. So I'm up for it. Okay, we have so many great, you know, outside of the university system. We have the Columbia Art League is still active. We have a great organization called Jabberwocky that works with with students. They have an art bus that goes around to communities in the summer. There's all sorts of ways. I'd love to have you in Columbia doing this fantastic community project with with all of the kids and, and, you know, the more adult university students too. So fingers crossed we can make that happen. Are you up for it? That we just put it out into the universe right now. <laughs> <So> here we go. <laughs> Nick Cave will be in conversation with Columbia's own Kenny Green at Westminster College on Wednesday, September the 14th, as part of the college's Hancock Symposium. And the Nick Cave exhibit for other more, an ode to those who, whether due to racism, homophobia or other forms of bigotry, live their lives as the other, is at Chicago's Museum of Contemporary Art through October the 2nd and will then move to the Guggenheim Museum in New York in mid-November. Nick Cave, it has truly been an honour to have this chance to chat with you. And thank you so much for getting up every day and doing the work and for making time to chat today. It was great. Thanks so much uh, for calling and uh, look forward to being at Westminster. Yeah, I will see you there. All right. Thanks, Nick. All right. Bye bye. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guest this evening, the world-renowned visual artist, sculptor, dancer, educator, and messenger, Nick Cave. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com.
Before I sign off, I would love for you to become a monthly member of KOPN. It really is the most convenient and easiest way to support community radio. Not only does it keep KOPN on the air by managing our bills, but for as little as $5, $10 or $20 a month, which you can set up to renew automatically, you literally help to keep the lights on, which allows me to bring the arts to your ears every week. So go to kopn.org and click on the red Donate Now button or else give us a call 874-KOPN to set up your monthly membership. Your donation helps ensure that this program remains in mid-Missouri. Finally, Thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.